Looking for a way to make quick cash? Making cash with DoorDash is super easy, guys. I love driving around my town, and now I can do that and get paid. Not to mention the sign-up process was so easy. Download the DoorDash driver app today to get started. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change, like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on, and Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. Please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Welcome to the Kingdom Community. Many in the body of Christ long for authentic community and a spiritual family to belong to. We exist to connect, equip, and send you into the world to fulfill your destiny and advance the kingdom of God on the earth. To learn more about us, please visit kingdomcommunity.global. We look forward to hearing from you. If you have not already done so, we encourage you just to go into the chat and download the notes. The notes are available for you absolutely free of charge, and they are accessible uh, after the session as well, but it's good to follow along. So this session, session number one in Soteria School, we're going to be talking about salvation. And I really believe that a lot of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have probably um, not understood the full scope and significance of salvation. And what I mean by that is we may not necessarily have been taught what salvation really is according to the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and what actually was provided for us in the New Covenant, which, of course, the Bible says in in the New Testament, the New Covenant is a better covenant. It's a superior covenant, and it offers so much more to us than what the saints in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant experienced. So, the gospel of the kingdom for those of you who were part of our first semester we were talking about the gospel of the kingdom interestingly the specific reference to gospel of salvation is only found one time in the new testament that's in ephesians chapter 1 verse number 13. however the concept the revelation the theological truth of salvation is replete in the New Testament. And um, here's, here's what I want you to understand this morning, um, this morning, my time, wherever you are in the world. First of all, that God has a kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's also called the kingdom of heaven. And in that kingdom, when we're born again, we enter that kingdom. When we live in God's kingdom, the more we learn about his Um, ways, how to walk in the kingdom, how to submit ourselves to the king himself, the greater the measure of the salvation of the kingdom is available to us. So in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that the kingdom provides salvation. There's so many references that that we could um, point to affirming this, but one of the coolest passages, I think, in the New Testament that talks about the gospel of the kingdom and salvation is actually in Luke chapter 1, where the father 
of John the Baptist, who was a priest, Zacharias, began to prophesy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he specifically spoke about the kingdom of God, and he talked about how that kingdom would bring salvation. And uh, I'm just going to refer to that, and you'll notice that I'm not necessarily following the notes in the order that they're laid out. But Luke chapter 1, verses 71, and then 74 through 75. Okay, it says here that Jesus came that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. In fact, if you look in verses 72 and 73, he specifically talks about a horn of salvation coming from the house of David. So what he's saying is that David's house, which speaks of the kingdom of God, obviously represents that horn of salvation. And the salvation, which, which is talking about the strength of salvation, the power of salvation. Paul said in, in Romans, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. So what we're saying here is there's no disparity, there's no discrepancy, there's no contradiction between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of salvation. I have heard a lot of people teach this, and I, I just want to say personally, I don't believe it's biblical. Uh, and I've heard people say, well, we teach the gospel of salvation but we really need to teach the gospel of the kingdom. Well, there's a problem with that. If we're teaching the gospel of salvation and it's not the same as the gospel of the kingdom, then it's really not the true gospel. So what I, I understand that people are saying, well, you know, we teach a modern day gospel, which really talks about uh, when we die, we go to heaven, but it does not include the fullness of the message of the kingdom. I understand that, and most people, that's what they're meaning. But I really believe we have to look at things from the perspective of understanding that the kingdom brings salvation. Okay. Now, some people have said, well, when you're saved, you enter the kingdom. Well, that's true, but the, the fact is, when you're born again, you enter, you're born into the, of the Spirit, born from above, and you see the kingdom, Jesus said in John 3, and you enter the kingdom according to Colossians 1 verse 13. And when you are in the kingdom, you are now in a place where you begin to experience the fullness of God's provision, his protection, his deliverance, his power in your life. So those three things are all part and parcel of the gospel of the kingdom, provision, protection, and power. When you're in the kingdom and you learn to submit to the king, you begin to experience those things in an ever-increasing manner. So it's very important that we get that. So the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of God's kingdom authority and power his provision, and his protection. In fact, when you look at what Jesus taught in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19, well, really verses 18 through 20, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine to go and to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He said, teach them to obey 
all things whatsoever I commanded you, or to observe those things. And what he's basically saying is there comes a point in our walk, in our relationship with God, where we begin to recognize and understand that we are living in the kingdom of God. It's a powerful thing. So there's three things that Jesus said in that passage. Number one, he said, I want you to go into all the earth and I want you to essentially make disciples of the nations. In Matthew 10, um, 7 and 8, he told his apostles to preach the kingdom. There's not a contradiction there, making disciples and preaching the kingdom, because disciples are really subjects of the kingdom. And I use the term subject instead of citizen. Certainly they're citizens of the kingdom, but a subject is someone who is um, in a place where they're under the lordship or the rulership of the king. I just um, was interviewed on a podcast, David Joannis, a podcast called Missions Pulse. David is a missionary in Thailand, and uh, he's a great, great man of God. And David was mentioning the fact that we have a struggle understanding the kingdom if we come from a democratic nation. Um, you know, he lives in Thailand, which technically Thailand is the kingdom of Thailand, and they have a king. And in Thailand, you cannot speak against your king. <laughs> if you do, you are going to be in big trouble. You'll be arrested. You'll be put in prison. Even if you post something on Facebook against the king of Thailand, you can find yourself in a lot of hot water if you do that. Now, a kingdom ultimately is a play, has uh, a king and has a sphere or a domain. In that sphere of that domain is where the king exercises his dominion. When we're born again, we come into the domain of the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God. And that's where the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, rules and reigns as we learn to submit to him and come under his authority. When we are under authority, then we have authority. So the scripture teaches that. Remember the story uh, in Luke 7 about the centurion who talked about how he had authority because he was under authority. But there's God's direct authority first and foremost. We must be submitted to God's direct authority. And then, of course, the scripture talks about God's delegated authority, those who are actually part of um, you know the the structure that God has set up, the authority that God has set up. So ultimately, this is what we're talking about. There is a place where we have to come under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are under his authority, then we have authority. That's why the Bible says in James chapter 4, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You can resist the devil all you want, but if you have an open door to him and you're not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then he has legal access into your life, and he does not have to flee. But when you submit yourself to God, resist the devil in that order, then he has to flee. He has to leave. The scripture is very clear about that. So when we're talking about the gospel, the kingdom, we're saying that in that kingdom is where God provides everything, the full scope of our redemption and our salvation. The gospel is not just a message to be shared by declaration, but it is a kingdom that is to be established in demonstration of the spirit and of power. I love Luke chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass afterward 
that he, Jesus, went throughout every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Preaching and bringing. Not just preaching the kingdom, but bringing the kingdom is what the new King James says. The um, old King James says preaching and shewing the glad tidings of the kingdom. Shewing, of course, is an old Elizabethan English word that means showing or demonstrating. Romans chapter 15, verse 19. Let's look at this. Paul is clear that the gospel is not fully preached. Listen to this. It's not fully preached until it, unless it is accompanied by the power of the Spirit in signs, wonders, and miracles. It says here, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. One translation, I think it's the English standard, says, I have fulfilled uh, the gospel of Christ. In the original Greek language, what he's saying is that the gospel is fulfilled when it's demonstrated in power. So in other words, if you flip that, the antithesis is if there's no power, if there's no demonstration, if it's just preaching, then the gospel is not fulfilled. In other words, it's not the full gospel. Jesus, in Matthew 4, 23, we see his, and this is just a powerful short verse. It says that Jesus, he went around preaching the kingdom, teaching in the synagogues, and what else? He was healing the sick, and of course, he was casting out demons. That's what his ministry consisted of, preaching the kingdom, these elements, teaching people, and demonstrating the power of the kingdom, healing the sick, and casting out demons. Everywhere Jesus went, people were set free of demonic strongholds, Demons were cast out of people. The authority of Satan was broken off their lives. The oppression of the enemy was taken away from them. Acts 10, 38, right? For God, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, and he went around doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And in 1 John 3, 8, it says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So the gospel is a gospel that is not just in word, but it's in power. Jesus said that the benevolent character of the king is displayed in his commitment to establish his righteous rule among his people and eradicate injustice and oppression from their lives. Think about this. If a king is a good king, he's going to take care of of his subjects. He's going to ensure that they have everything they have need of. And of course, we know that there is no king that is any better than our king. And as a result, because he's completely compassionate, he's just. Jesus said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news, or in other words, the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom. Okay, come on now. He sent, he came to bring freedom for the prisoners, recover his sight for the blind, and release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which actually speaks of the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee, of course, is when debts were forgiven, slaves were set free, and property was restored to people who had lost their property. So it speaks of 
of basically a coming to a place of experiencing forgiveness, um, of, of experiencing deliverance, um, being free, emancipated, and then restoration. Okay, so those three things are very, very powerful. The gospel is all about those three things. Now, healing and miracles, uh, in the natural, I'm talking about physical healing, and of course, emotional healing involves in this, and spiritual healing as well, is the means by which God God demonstrates a few things. Number one, his personal love, his profound love, and his personal concern for his people, but ultimately his justice. I want you to see something here. You may not have noticed this before. In Mark chapter 3, it says that when Jesus entered the synagogue, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they were watching Jesus. The religious folk were watching Jesus closely to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that they were not disputing his ability to heal the sick, but they were just concerned about whether he was going to do it on the Sabbath. And, <laughs> you know, that's the spirit of religion. And what ends up happening is uh, he says to the man who has the withered hand, step forward and he said to them, speaking to the religious people and those who were there, the onlookers, is it lawful on the Sabbath, listen to this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. I mean, come on, that's a big, that's a setup there. What are you going to say? And when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, this is an actual miracle that took place, obviously, but it's also a prophetic picture of how God restores. And it also shows us, I believe, most importantly, the very character and, and very um, nature of God in that he wants to bring justice to his people. Now, there are people that say crazy things like God afflicts us with sickness to try to teach us humility and all that. And, and, I, and I understand um, <clears throat> that we can open the door to the enemy and give place to him and that stuff comes upon us. I also believe that if we don't look after ourselves physically, we can get sick, obviously. But ultimately, what we see here is the heart and the intention of God is to bring healing and wholeness to his people. Jesus, look at this, the significance of Jesus' words in verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, it's very interesting when he talks about that, he's saying that kill. Now, he didn't say to save life or to allow someone to, you know, pass away without doing anything. In other words, kill is an active term. Kill speaks of doing something. It's an act, in other words. It's an action. So what he's saying is that if he refused to heal this man, it would be an evil act tantamount to murder. Think about that. If Jesus refused to heal that man, he's telling those guys, Y'all concerned about whether I'm going to heal on the Sabbath? Or he said, look, he said, the question here isn't about the Sabbath or this not being the Sabbath, waiting until it's not the Sabbath. He said, the question is about justice here. The question is, 
Do we save this man's life when we have the power to do so? Or do we do good? Do we do evil? Do we save life or do we kill? By our negligence, by omitting to heal this man when I have the power to do so, he's saying this is equivalent to doing evil and murder. Now, that's a strong word. And uh, most of us are like, oh my gosh. But I want you to see something here that God is so committed to bringing salvation. Remember the word salvation. We're going to talk about the definition of it in a moment. That it actually is that he died so that we would be free, we would be healed, we'd be restored, that we would live. Remember in John 10, 10, he says that we might have life and life more abundantly, of course. So the gospel is powerful. And we see the heart of the king here. Really, guys, the Bible says in the book of Galatians, um, I believe it's chapter, it's either chapter five or six, it actually says that faith works by love, faith that worketh by love. And what I'm saying here is that there is a place where our faith actually has to be rooted and grounded in the character and the love of God. Do we actually believe that God is good? that God wants to heal, that he wants to help his children. Remember, Jesus said this several times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. He said, if you are evil and you know how to do good, and he said, how much more is your heavenly Father? If you are being, you know, as fathers are, are you know, being evil, know how to do good, how much more will your heavenly Father? You know, and so he's making that comparison there, like if in the natural earthly fathers, earthly parents will do good and help their children and have compassion on their children and do whatever they can. You know, he said, how much more will our father in heaven, who is ultimately benevolent and good and pure in all his ways? All right. Romans 1, 16. I've already mentioned this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, for it is the power of God. Notice this unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God, but it is power with the purpose. It is the power of God unto salvation. For whom? For everyone who believes. If you believe, listen to me, please. Please know this, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for your life. Now, it is power unto salvation. It is power that has a purpose. The gospel not only offers pardon from our past and a promise of paradise, but also power and provision for the present. It is indeed power unto salvation. Now, I've already referred to Luke chapter 1, particularly verses 74 and 75, where it talks about being saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Jesus came that we would be delivered from the hand of our men, enemies so that we might serve the Father without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Please, everyone, I just want you to look at that verse and underscore it again and again. Do you see what the scripture says here? Let God be true and every man a liar. It doesn't matter what people say, what people are proclaiming. It says that Jesus came to save us from our enemies and the hands of all who hate us to grant us that we would be delivered 
delivered from the hand of our enemies, that we would be delivered and that we might serve him, what? Without fear, without fear, no fear. This is a fear-free zone in the, in the kingdom of God. It's a fear-free zone. What? Without fear in holiness and righteousness. How often? All the days of our life. Come on, guys. Do you see that? You can go ahead and make some comments in the chat here. Do you see that? Do you, do you believe that? That's why he came. Now, listen, the word salvation in the Greek language is soteria or soteria, some people say. Soteria actually is, is a very interesting term. The action word, the verb, of course, is sozo. And sozo is translated different ways, but it means to rescue, to deliver, to save, to make whole, to heal. That's, that's just a few of the ways. But if you really study soteria, and, and I did this a few years ago, I found out, and you can even look this up, like in a Strong's Concordance, it will even say this, that the word soteria or soteria actually speaks of being free or delivered from the harassment of an enemy. Being free or delivered from the harassment of an enemy. That's what salvation is. Look at, again, Luke chapter 1, verses 74 and 75. These are the, the key verses for this course, guys. Luke 1, 74 and 75 be assured, have confidence in the fact that God wants to, Jesus came to save us from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us to grant us that we would be delivered from the hand of our enemies so that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So let's talk about the gospel for a moment. One of the most common misconceptions related to the gospel, it's really only concerned about spiritual needs. But the fact is, the Bible teaches the exact opposite, the antithesis. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Look at this, 5.23, 1 Thessalonians. In fact, verse 24 as well. It says this, now may the God of peace, Paul's praying, it's like a benediction, but it is a prayer for the saints. It's a prayer for you and me as well. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he also will do it. Did you hear that? We rest in the confidence that verse 23 will be fulfilled as because God's faithful. He is faithful and he will do it. Now, he specifically speaks of the God of peace. Now, the word peace in the New Testament, of course, is, um, it's, it's a good word. We'll talk about that. But there's another word in the Old Testament that is even more profound. And that word, of course, is shalom. Peace speaks of shalom. Shalom is more descriptive of what really salvation is all about. Look at Isaiah 26, verse 3. 
you will keep him in perfect peace. Under, underscore those two words, perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So we see that God has a promise, but there's also a process. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand. For every promise in the word of God, there is a process or a process, depending on what part of the world you live in. <laughs> and the process essentially is our part, and the promise is God's part. God will do, will fulfill his promise, but we must commit ourselves to the process. And the process here is that God will keep us in perfect peace, but the process, I'm sorry, the promise is he will keep us in perfect peace. But the process is we must keep our mind stayed on him and we must trust in him. And if it actually says because he, he trusts in you. So I want you to understand this. Shalom in this particular verse is actually verse the two words perfect peace. In the original Hebrew, it's actually translated shalom, shalom. You notice that when you when you bid someone um, and give them greetings in Israel, they say shalom. When you're leaving, they say shalom, shalom. And it's actually perfect peace is shalom, shalom. It's a double shalom in the original language. Shalom is not just the absence of conflict. Like I pray that you have a good day and you don't have any problems. That's not what shalom means. Shalom has nothing to do with the external, or let me rephrase that. Shalom doesn't have so much to do with the external as it has to do with the internal, our inward peace, being at rest. But the idea is this. It's not just the absence of conflict, but it's completeness, nothing missing, nothing broken, nothing lacking, and nothing withheld. That's what the Hebrew word shalom means. And when he says perfect peace, that's double for your trouble. He's saying, I'm going to give you double shalom. So what? In English, peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. That's words that we would use that really kind of carry the idea of what shalom means. And it also, interestingly, the word shalom also speaks of being unimpaired in relationships with others and experiencing fulfillment in your undertakings. So in other words, it's speaking of favor and prosperity, that you would have favor with people and that you would also experience prosperity in all of your undertakings. Very powerful. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yahweh, in Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. God made an amazing promise. You will keep him in perfect peace. Your mind is stayed in you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever, for in Yahweh, or in Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. You will keep him in perfect peace. Very, very powerful. Very, very powerful. Think about this. Adam and Eve were at perfect peace with God and all he created. Their needs were supplied. They did not suffer hunger, disease, or pain of any kind. Um, they were beauty surrounded them so they could experience and enjoy it. They weren't lonely. They had each other. And more importantly, they had an intimate relationship with their creator. If any people ever experienced the shalom of God, it was Adam and Eve. 
and the condition of peace existed in the garden only as long as they were obedient to God's will. Unfortunately, they disobeyed and the shalom of God was lost for them. Brokenness, missing, lacking, uh, experiencing things withheld, you know, the blessing of God withheld. Now, the very nature of salvation has been misinterpreted, misunderstood by many. Jesus came, he said this himself in Luke 19, verse 10, to restore that which was lost. To restore that which was lost. It didn't say the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, is what it says. And that's what the original says as well. It doesn't say to save those that are lost, but to basic seek and save that, something impersonal, which was lost, past tense. Very powerful. Think of that. Jesus came to restore what was lost in the garden. And when we experience salvation in, in his kingdom, we experience the restoration of those things that were lost. Now, let's look at the word save. It's the word sozo in the New Testament. It's used at least four ways. Okay, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. I'm saying it's used four ways. Number one, Matthew 121 the angel says to Mary, you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sin. So it speaks of salvation from sin. The word save is sozo in that verse. Save them not in their sin, but from their sin. Jesus came to save us from our sin. Romans 6.14 says, sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. Grace is a session we'll talk more about because there's been Grace has been dissed, <laughs> and because grace has been dissed, is disgraced. So we need to understand grace, what it really is in the New Testament. James 5.16 talks about the sick being anointed with oil by the elders. It says the prayer of faith will save the sick. Some translations say heal the sick. It's the Greek word salvation. So it does speak of physical healing in that context. Luke 8.16 talks about the demonized man and how he was delivered and set free. And the word that is used there is sozo. Okay, so salvation from Satan's power, salvation from demons. Please understand, guys, that when he's speaking there, he's talking about the control of the enemy over people's lives. And Jesus, of course, spent a lot of time ministering salvation in the sense of setting people free and delivering people from uh, demonic influence. So very, very powerful. Now, please understand that salvation is not only uh, about the, the spiritual, it's about the physical and the psychological. And we, as we said, healing from sickness, um, salvation from sickness, salvation from Satan, and then James 1.21 talks about salvation of the soul. And it's interesting. It actually says, and I'm paraphrasing, but the gist of it is this. James is writing to believers. He's writing to Jewish believers. And he says, I want you to receive with meekness the implanted or engrafted word which is able to save your soul. The word means implanted. There's a word in you. People that are not um, born of the Spirit of God, 
they're not God's people. They don't have the word in them. So he's saying this is, he's writing to believers and he said, I want you to receive it with meekness. In other words, remember just before that, he said, be swift to listen, slow to speak and slow to be angry. And he said, because basically the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then he says, so meekness is what you need. Meekness, basically, it's a very powerful word, but basically it means submission. It means giving up your rights, giving up your will and your desires and submitting to, to God's will. So submit to God's will, receive with meekness, be teachable, be easily corrected, and just allow God to have his way and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able, notice what he says, save your soul. Now, when he talks about soul here, one of the things that we need to understand is it's the Greek word suke. Suke in the Greek is the word from which we get our English term in English, psyche or psychological. And of course, it speaks of our mind, our emotions, our will, our affections. And he's saying that you need to allow the word of God to save your psyche. There are a lot of people that have problems in their thinking. They have tormenting thoughts. They have memories from the past that, that plague them. Um, they have uh, strong affections and desires that, that are carnal, that are ungodly, like lusts. Um, they have addictions that they can't seemingly you know, bring under submission to God. And, and so I want you to understand that the answer is to receive with meekness the implanted word. The word has power. It's planted in you, but you've got to receive it with meekness. It's able to save your soul. Fear, right? The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I believe it's verse number 6, it says um, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. So God wants to heal us. If your emotions are just out of control and, you know, you're just uh, wounded, if there's things you're dealing with, you're being triggered about things, you know, you've experienced rejection. We're going to be doing some sessions on rejection and how that opens the door to the enemy as well. If we don't deal with things, of course, soul ties we're going to be talking about. We're going to be dealing with um, unforgiveness and how that opens the door to the demonic. Of course, uh, there's other things that we do as well, witchcraft, the occult, um, sin, obviously opens the door to the enemy. But ultimately, we have to recognize that salvation is for the entire man, spirit, soul, and body. Isaiah talks about that in Isaiah 53, verse 4. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Now, in Matthew 8, Jesus is ministering. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. And it says in verse 16 and 17, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. Now, as I've already referred to, Jesus is quoting Isaiah, or Luke, I'm sorry, Matthew is, is quoting Isaiah 53, 4. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. So 
Isaiah says sorrows. Matthew says diseases. So it seems here that there's a discrepancy, but in actuality, there's not because the Hebrew word in Isaiah's text means to feel pain. The Hebrew word means to feel pain. It can be translated literally or figuratively. Jesus came to heal us from the source and the experience of pain, all pain, spiritual pain, psychological pain, pain in our mind, pain in our emotions, pain in our body, pain in our soul, and pain in our spirit. That includes trauma. That includes physical pain. He came to heal us. The implication is powerful, guys. Now, I want you to look at this. A study on the word evil. In Matthew 6, 13, Jesus said, Save, pray, deliver us from evil. Remember he said that? We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's actually the prayer of the disciples. He says, deliver us from evil. Some translations say deliver us from the evil one because it can be translated both ways. Satan is the evil one. The devil is the evil one. The, the word evil is a very interesting term. It actually is derived from a Greek word that means pain. Pain. Evil comes from a word that means pain. And that word comes from another word which means poor. So look at this. Evil, paneros, pain, panos, and uh, poor, penes. Okay, this is a powerful, powerful term. So Jesus came to destroy the power of evil, sin, to destroy uh, pain in our lives, which would be caused by sickness and poverty, and also even to deal with um, poverty in our lives. Guys, you know what? I mean, you think about that. Obviously, when God comes to set people free, when Jesus comes to set people free, which he did at the cross, he came to set us free, we have to recognize and understand that that entails um, the entire person. Okay, so this is powerful. All right, let's look at this. Ephesians 4, 12, verse 11 talks about how he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And it says to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. But then it continues in the following verses until at least verse 16, where he talks about how we become conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And the fullness of the stature of Christ, it's not just about we know what our gifts are, we know what our place is in the body. In fact, this is all about becoming like Christ. And our, our relationship with God is of utmost importance, uh, not just what we do in ministry, but who we are, how we relate to God, and also what we allow the Lord to do in our lives in terms of bringing to us salvation. Now, I want you to notice this. The word equip in the original Greek language is katartizmos. This word is not found anywhere else. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. However, the corresponding verb katartizo is used many times. Here's just four examples, and there are many other examples. It's used in Matthew 4.21, a mending a fishing net that was torn. Katartizo is used in Hebrews 11.3 about God turning chaos into cosmos. When he created uh, the universe, we know the earth was void, without form, it was in darkness, and he brought 
cosmos or order out of chaos, disorder. Thirdly, bringing to completion that which is lacking, particularly in someone's faith is what it means in 1 Thessalonians 3.10. And then lastly, in Luke 6.40, this is powerful, Luke 6.40, it says the student is not above the teacher, but when the student has been perfectly trained, he will be like his teacher. Those two words in English, perfectly trained, are, uh, is the Greek word kartartizo. So it speaks of being conformed to the likeness of the sun. Now here's what I want you to look see. And some of you have heard me teach this before, but it's powerful. If you've never saw this in the Gospels, it's powerful. So the very first way I refer to the word kardotizo is translated, it's used in Matthew 4.21. James and John are sitting on the seashore. They've just returned, obviously, from a fishing trip uh, recently. And they're sitting there with the nets that they use to catch fish. And they are actually mending the nets. Very, very common. I've been to... Um, places in the world where they still fish this way they launch out into these boats and they have the nets and they throw them out and when they return often the nets are have been torn and they're in need of repair so they actually hand repair those nets they they uh, sew them they they repair the torn fishing nets so it's interesting that in the gospels jesus actually does two miracles that have to do with um, fishing nets, okay? And, of course, an abundant catch of fish. The first one is in the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 5. It says that Simon had been fishing all night to no avail. Jesus shows up, tells him to, Jesus gets in the boat, right? And he begins to preach to people. And then after he's preaching to them, he tells Simon Peter to launch out into the deep and let down the nets for a catch. Initially, uh, Simon Peter hesitates. Then he finally acquiesces. And when he does, man, there's this amazing catch of fish. <laughs> and the Bible tells us in Luke 5, 6, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. They caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. What happens is Jesus after they bring the net to shore, Jesus essentially calls them to follow him and become fishers of men. And when he says, I will make you fishers of men, that involves a process. Becoming, becoming a fisher of men. In other words, I have a purpose, I have a plan, I have a destiny and a calling for your life. But I have a process that you must engage in. So come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. All right. Three and a half years later, we know Jesus is arrested. He's crucified. He's raised from the dead on the third day. He ascends to the Father, but then he comes back. And for 40 days, he's on the earth, walking among the people, um, certain people, revealing himself and his disciples to his disciples. And then there's another account which is found in the final chapter of the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And it's very reminiscent of what the disciples had experienced in the beginning of the ministry. 
You know, these guys were commercial fishermen, many of them. Now Jesus is gone. How are they going to survive? How are they going to be able to continue? Because he had supernaturally been providing for them. Remember, the kingdom brings not only power and protection, but also provision. Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. So what ends up happening is um, these guys go fishing. Man, they fish all night. They catch nothing. <laughs> and Jesus calls out to them. They didn't know it was him at the time from the shore. And he says, hey, guys, hey, little children, uh, do you, have you caught any fish? And they're like, man, you know, no, nothing, not at all. And then he says, look, I want you to do this. Let down the net on the right-hand side of the boat. And when they let the net down on the right-hand side of the boat, what happened? The Bible is very clear. It says that there was an incredible uh, catch of fish. Verse 11 says this, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to the, to the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Hmm. Interesting. Now, <clears throat> here we see these two fishing miracles. The first time, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he calls the disciples. This one is three and a half years later after they had been with him. The first time, he says, go launch out into the deep. And then after three and a half years, can I just say this, of going deep with Jesus, they now are in a place where uh, what ends up happening is Jesus calls them again to go to do this, you know, to try to catch fish. And of course, on their own strength, their own volition and skills, nothing happens. But when he speaks the word, and there's a lot, we could preach on this one, but that's another subject. When he speaks the word, you know what I'm saying? In other words, if you do something and he hasn't given you the word, it'll be fruitless. But when he speaks the word, there will always be fruit. <laughs> so what ends up happening is they let down the net on the right-hand side of the boat, which speaks of authority. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, speaks of resurrection power. And this time, there's an abundant catch of fish. There's 153 large fish. Now, some, um, if you do some research, you'll see that St. Jerome is attributed to saying that 153 was actually the number of the nations of that day. Well, there's some scholars that disagree with that. But ultimately, here's the point. That net was full of a lot of really big fish. 153 large fish were literally uh, bursting the net in the natural. But what happens is it says, even though there were so many fish, you would expect the net would break, it would tear. But the net was not broken. Now notice this, the net is not broken. What does this mean? Again, the word kartartizo, equip, to be perfectly trained, speaks also in Matthew 4, 21 of mending a fishing net. And the point I'm trying to make here is discipleship as a process is connected to what Jesus did in the, at the cross as an act, as salvation in other words. And what he's saying is if you will follow me, 
if you will commit your life to a life of discipleship, if you will launch out into the deep and go deep with me, sometimes the reason we're not experiencing that mending in our lives is because we haven't gone deep enough with God. We're fishing in the surface, so to speak. We need to go deeper with God. And if we will go deeper with him and we will commit ourselves to a life of submission to God, to discipleship, to the process of being um, soteriat, so to speak, to the process of mending, kartartizo, then we will experience that healing in our lives. The very word that is, that, that very word, kartartizo, can be translated obviously repair, but it also speaks of prepare, so reparation and preparation. Reparation in the not so common politically correct meaning of the word. If you if you look it up in the dictionary, reparation actually means to repair something. So he's saying here that there is actually a work in which God repairs us. Now think of it. If a net is torn, you repair that net. But why do you repair it? Because that act of repairing the net is actually contributing to it has a twofold uh, purpose to prepare the net so you can use that net to catch fish. Now, some people, I jokingly talk about this, some churches are, you know, the first church of the repaired fishing net. <laughs> Come to our church, we'll heal you, we'll get you set free, we'll get you delivered. And that's awesome. That's so important. We need more churches like that, more ministries. But then they kind of stop there. They don't send you out. They don't, they don't know what to do with you. And so people come. But, you know, and then we have other ministries and churches which are kind of like the fishing net church that's, you know, we'll send you out to go fishing, but the net has never been prepared. The net has never been repaired and prepared. So people go out to try to catch fish, but the net breaks because there's not been this reparation and preparation process in their lives. Jesus not only called them to do ministry, but he called them first and foremost to be with him. In fact, in the account in Luke, after he spent the night in prayer, after about one year, the disciples followed him. They just followed him, walked with him, hung out with Jesus, and connected with him. And then after a year, he spends a night in prayer, and then what ends up happening is he is spending the night in prayer. He receives revelation from the Father, and he comes down from the mountain, and he calls 12 to be um, apostles, and he appoints them apostles. That, and it says in Mark's account that they might be with him. This is in Mark chapter 3. I forget the exact verse. That they might be with him and that he might send them out. Now look at this process of salvation has to do with being with him and being sent out. It's not, you know, it's both. It's not either or, it's both. Being with him and sent out. And we have to continue being with him. We cannot just do ministry. Neither can we just say, well, I'm just going to be with Jesus. I'm just going to hang out with Jesus. He wants you to do certain things. He wants you to set the captives free. He wants you to help others. But this process of reparation and preparation must proceed the sending. 
So there's a place where God says, I want to mend you of your misery so I can send you into your ministry. I want to mend you of your misery so I can send you into your ministry. This course, Soteria, is all about that. We want to see God's people made whole, spirit, soul, and body. God wants to heal you. He wants to make you whole. He wants to set you free. God is more concerned about who we are, first and foremost, than what we do. Remember Daniel 11.32b says, But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out or do great exploits. Now, in the Hebrew, here's what it says. It says, the people who know their God, yada is the Hebrew word. Yada means to know it personally, intimately, and experientially, shall be strong. It's the Hebrew word kazakh. Kazakh literally means, one of the meanings of kazakh is to be established, to be strengthened or to be made strong, but it can also mean this, to be repaired. The word Kazakh literally means repaired. People that know God are repaired. So this course is all about helping you know God first and foremost, who he is, because you'll never know who you are. You'll never be made whole until you really know him, until you go deep with him. So knowing God those who know their God shall be strong, being, knowing first, then being. And it says they will do great exploits. Some New King James says carry out. So it actually, that word great exploits there <clears throat> is not in the original language. You'll notice in some translations it's in parentheses. But the word that is do or carry out or whatever other way it's translated in English literally means to do work or to act with effect, to do work, or to act with effect. So God wants you to do things. He wants you to do his works. Ephesians 2.10, we were created for good works that he foreordained, he predestined us for walking. But we have to know God. Those who know their God shall be strong, being, and they shall do, doing. So knowing comes first, then being, then doing. So specifically, Knowing God, that's intimacy with God. Secondly, being secure in our identity, being established in righteousness, knowing that we're a son, a daughter of God. And then lastly, thirdly, living out our destiny. That's the process that God brought, Jesus brought his disciples through in order for them to be made whole in every way. Thanks for joining us today at The Kingdom Community. We trust that you are encouraged as a result of spending time with us. We exist to connect, equip, and send you out into the world to fulfill your destiny and advance the kingdom of God. To learn more about The Kingdom Community, please visit our website, kingdomcommunity.global. Again, our website is kingdomcommunity.global. Together, we are better.